People are angry. If you can't get it under control, shut it all down. So I get where people are coming from, but I also, I'm also a practical person, right? Like I know that tomorrow I'm not going to wake up and we're not going to have police. I do agree. I Let me be clear on the record that there are other countries that do not rely on policing in the way that we do in our country. We are very sort of carceral minded. We are very committed to prisons and law enforcement in this country in ways that that other countries are not. And so I think as a mindset, we have to shift. So I think figuring out what it is we don't need them to do. Within three years of release, two out of three ex-offenders are rearrested. Clearly, something is broken. It's time we strategize ways to prevent repeat offenses. Our brainstorming session starts now. Welcome to A Prisoner's Pardon. Hello, and welcome to A Prisoner's Pardon Podcast. I'm your host, Michi J. Today, we're doing part two of my interview with Christine Henning. She's an attorney out of Washington, D.C., and she deals with the juvenile justice system. In light of that, I really want to preface this interview with the latest news about the Nashville shootings. I want to give my condolences to the victims family. I am so sorry in my heart and my prayers are for you all. As well as I want to give praise to the cops that were involved in that and responded in such a great way. We really appreciate you. This interview today is very enlightening. After seeing this shooting, it really made me think more about what Christine Henning said. And what she says is really relevant to what's going on. But I want to say too that this school incident is not what she's talking about here. And really to listen and understand where she's coming from in defunding, or I would better say reimagining how police should be used. Because in the wake of what happened here, Many people are looking at possibly putting police in the schools. So this interview will help us come to the best solution of how do we protect our kids? Because first and foremost, we should be protecting society, protecting our kids, because that is the purpose of our penal system, first and foremost. I also want to apologize for my mic during this interview. I'm so sorry about the sound. Please forgive me for that. And please listen to the message in spite of that. Now let's jump into that interview. Absolutely. So this notion of investing in um, children, families, and communities, right? And that includes the school system. And so that means, and look, it's not even about defunding the police. It's about reimagining policing and reimagining funding in ways that capitalize on what police officers do best and then relieve them of all of the other responsibilities. So why are people saying that? Why when they hear defunding the police, they're not talking like you talk. Honestly, I I think folks are angry. I mean, we've seen far too many and far too many incidents 
of of police violence in our community and especially towards black and brown folks. So people are angry. If you can't get it under control, shut it all down. So I get where people are coming from, but I also, I'm also a practical person, right? Like I know that tomorrow I'm not gonna wake up and we're not gonna have police. I do agree. I Let me be clear on the record that there are other countries that do not rely on policing in the way that we do in our country. We are very sort of carceral minded. We are very committed to prisons and law enforcement in this country in ways that that other countries are not. And so I think as a mindset, we have to shift. But when I talk about being nuanced, right, in thinking about reimagining policing, that means we are shrinking, yeah, the size and the scope and the, the responsibilities of police officers to exclude things like policing a mental health crisis, policing a drug addiction or drug overdose, policing children. We know, again, like that's not the role of police in, in our society to, you know, so I think figuring out what it is we don't need them to do. And so we have. Um, I agree with you. That's, yeah. I, I totally agree with you. I hope. I know just from this conversation, you're going to be swaying a whole lot of people because you're giving some real data, um, protecting the public as well as protecting the children at the same time. Because you, you've been, you're on the forefront of this. People need to be listening to what you're saying here because it's going to make a world of difference. I like that. More funding was needed in the schools to, you're just talking about shrinking. Yeah. They shouldn't be parenting. Police shouldn't be parenting. So shouldn't also, because sometimes the family don't know who to call and they call the police. That's right. Well, one of the things is, what is it? The new national, what is it? 311 numbers, a, na- a new national um, hotline so that folks don't have to call the police and instead can call mental health emergency center. I'm trying to remember if that's the new, what it's called, the new 311, but there's there, there's an effort, right? But some cities have done it like emergency access helpline for the Department of Mental Health. There is the mobile crisis units that have evolved in some jurisdictions, or even if people are calling 911, they have a 911 triage system that would listen in and say, well, maybe that's more appropriate for an emergency first responder who has medical expertise or mental health expertise. So having like youth calling someone to the scene, like you think about kids and the number of school related police violence, right? Kids being body slammed at school that happened times in Florida, instead of calling the police to break up a fight between kids and school, that you call the behavioral intervention specialist. That's the way to rethink a path forward to reducing contact between young people and the police. Yeah, I think our community is not very much aware of that. They just, you know, automatically call the police. And also what, you have to do a large campaign to get this awareness out to, you know, to family members, people in the community to know what to do because you're right. Because even it's even going to help the adult side as well and start, if we start with the juveniles, and you know, get some of these interventions in place to help people 
where we don't have to use policing to do because I, a lot of this, I think people just don't know how to handle it. That's right. That's absolutely right. And so part of what I think, you know, try to do in trainings and speeches, education, um, writing, you know, about the rage of innocence, the criminalization of Black youth is to educate folks. And I really do. I say, Nietzsche, that the you taught me this and it's really stuck with me and it helps frame the work that I do, which is that 20% of the people do know what's going on behind juvenile court closed doors. They know what's going on, what the alternatives to policing and criminalization are and incarceration are, but 60% of the people just don't know, right? They don't know what's going on. They don't know that there are alternatives. They haven't had conversations about reimagining our traditional law enforcement responses to virtually everything. We call the police for everything from getting your cat out the tree to getting your car door unlocked to like, we need in our country, a different system, but 60% of the people know that I mean, I don't know that at all, that there are alternatives. And if we could even just get 80% of the people, right, to come along and shift and have a changed mindset. And the experience is 20% already know, 60% don't know, but if they did know, they would change their thinking. And then 20% of the people are probably, you know, just going to, they're stuck in their ways and they're not going to shift. But 80%, that's a lot. And we can make that's a lot of change with that. I know, that's a lot. That's going to that's gonna make a world of difference, I think. And I'm so glad to hear, just because a lot of the stuff I'm hearing is really, really new. And I know it's going to be new for a lot of the listeners. So what else? Okay, you're saying, I know because of our background, you know, it's things that's going to happen in our community because of things that happen. So we automatically put in this predicament. Okay. So we really need to be educating young parents, you know, parents quickly, because it's not just the juvenile system. If they get into that, um, the child welfare, the protective services system, that's another right. system. I know. Uh, I call that the family, the, look, I call that the family policing system. <laughs> it's it's being weaponized. And right. In the same so, way. Yeah. And it's hard to get out of that. So I like this holistic approach. It's like really artistic and they're taking, they're, they've even stripped art out of the schools a lot of times where, mm-hmm. you know, where people can just know how to express themselves, especially kids, you know, they don't know how to express themselves and even adults don't, especially kids, you know, you can just imagine what they're going through as kids because their minds are still developing and they're needing advocates like you to come in and just help to save them. So what other things, you know, with America criminalizing Black youth, part of it is policing, how they're policing the schools. That's one, right? What's another? I just wanted to be very clear about that. Yeah. What is the main things when they're saying, when you're saying they're criminalizing? Right. So I would um, add to that. So one was that first part was all about the ways in which we reduce the footprint of police, period, so that we can reduce the contact. Um, yes, because I like that. 
Right. Because think about it, right? Kids are like the things we talked about, impulsive and reactive, emotional. And if they think that the police system is unfair, which many black kids do or brown kids do, many teenagers do, you know, they react. Right. And so police encounters go from zero to 100 like overnight. And so we I mean, over yeah, in an instant, I mean, overnight, they go um, from zero to 100 in an instant. And we need to reduce the contact. The other things are um, literally on in the books, in the legal books right or meaning on the laws we need to modify the laws to decriminalize certain behaviors right so decriminalize things like a minor school fight right that does not result in any kind of serious physical violence or even you know that can be regulated by behavioral specialists within the school and i'm not saying put it on teachers and distract teachers from being able to teach but that we invest in right? Behavioral specialist counselors who sit in classrooms, behavioral aides in the classroom who can intervene and assist with experience, expertise in adolescent development, in special education, mental health services. That's who we need to be companions with teachers. I'm saying decriminalize on the books, things like a threats charge, that is merely adolescent aggressive speech. Decriminalize simple assaults that arise out of a school fight. Decriminalize, to be quite frank, experimental drug use like marijuana, right? Even for kids. I know that sounds radical, but it's not. How many of you all, you know, or better yet, how many white middle class have tried marijuana or experimented with some other drug, right? We allow that to happen behind closed doors in white communities. And in Black communities, Black children are far more likely to be brought into the court system for drug use and things of that nature. So thinking about behaviors that we can address, I'm not saying let the children run amok. I'm saying, do we need the court system to do that? So that's one. I think other reforms involve not prosecuting children as adults, laws that prohibit the not only prosecution, but incarceration of children in facilities with adults. That needs to change. Yeah, there are a lot. There are a lot more nuances. Like, I, you know, I don't want to, you know, go into too many details. The, but the, right, like. Yeah, I like that. Um, yeah. Speaking from my own background, like I saw two views, two views where I didn't, I was really afraid of the police. Mm-hmm. You know, just being taught young um, and just seeing things at a young age. But also I did see where they are needed and was good for a situation. So I was blessed to see both sides and trying to, but it's still hard to process and go through. And do you think it would be a good thing for police? Like you said, they need to be retrained. And when they're dealing with a very serious situation or a family member and stuff, maybe they should tell, they should try to get the children out of there and not to see I think that's part of some try to get the yeah. So to help me yeah. understand, try, try to get yeah. the children out of where out of out where they don't see as much of what they have, you know, what they're doing. I, you know, I just experienced some things when I was young, and if they would have, you know, got us out of the room or 
Oh, I see. That's right. So, so you're not witnessing violence or abuse or all of that. Yeah. I mean, so the, so the, so the trick is, right. It's just like you talked about how the child welfare system is now being weaponized in, in, you know, so it's tricky to figure out how to draw that line and figure out what constitutes um, an appropriate state intervention at what time on, on behalf of a kid. Right. So it's, Right. We don't want kids in violent environments. Right. We don't want kids subject to abuse um, at all. So when do you know when is the red flag? Right. That we we have it. And so part of what I think I'm suggesting with regard to a public health approach is having eyes on those children at the school system. Right. In elementary school and 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 asking questions, but not not with an eye towards the the bias presumption that a black mother can't raise her children or or that, but that where could I do to support this child if if and the family, right? If that child appears to come to school not getting a good night's sleep or appears to be anxious or um, are people asking the right question, how are you? How are you at home? Not with an eye to go to that house and rip that child out and lock that parent up, but with an eye towards how can I support you? How can I make sure whatever is causing stress and anxiety in the home um, can be alleviated, right? Um, that's that's a tricky balance. But the answer is yes, we do want to help remove kids from those environments, but also empowering them, giving them choice and agency, right? Kids, so many kids that we work with um, in the delinquency side are kids who got ripped from their home, um, you know, because their parent was a drug addict. Right. I get that. I, I don't get that. What I get is I should have said it differently. What I get is, is that mom needs help. Right. That mom needs support and drug treatment um, and not to demonize mom. Right. And then finding the supports. Who else in the community can help that child? And can I provide aid to the other family members who will step up and, and support that child? That makes total sense. And what I was talking about, I was speaking about this that it happened, um, but it wasn't a domestic or anything mm -hmm. like that. It was just um, them doing a raid or something and then not taking the kids out of there or something. And kids are witnessing that. Oh, um, that is huge, Michi. Yeah. I mean, let me just say this about it. There's a growing body of research documenting the extraordinary psychological trauma that comes from uh, policing uh, and uh, criminalizing. But let's just stick with policing, like a police raid, you know, um, and how impactful that is for a child, particularly during those child or adolescent years. The research shows that, you know, Black and, and Latino children who live in heavily policed neighborhoods, who attend heavily policed schools, who have been the target of the of stops and frisks and searches and all of that report high rates of fear, anxiety, depression, hopelessness. They become hypervigilant. Um, but in addition, it's like what you talked about, even just witnessing it, right? Witnessing it or hearing about it among um, friends and family is just as, as bad as being there, right? Or, or as being, excuse me, being the target yourself. So witnessing it, even witnessing it on television, all the kids, all the teenagers who watch George Floyd die, you know, on national television or have watched replays of Eric um, Garner being choked out, Mike Brown, you know, lying in the street, all of that 
has been shown to have a psychological trauma. So you're absolutely right. I didn't understand what you were getting at. My apologies, but like, you know, removing children from those, you know, those scenes um, is, is important when police show up and do a raid. But the reality is today with, um, with internet and social media, they see this stuff all the time. And so we're not calculating as a society, the harms that we are doing to black and brown children who are witnessing and hearing about these um, these incidents. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm glad you said that. Cause, yeah, because that's what I was speaking about. And, <clears throat> and I still still remember it. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not gonna tell you how old I am, <laughs> <laughs> but I still remember and you still you try to process those things and you have to be very um, careful you know, making judgments and stuff like that because of those type of traumas. That's and right. I realize as an adult, and I can't imagine a kid being able to process things like I am able to do now to be able to do that. So you, you're going to have to contend with issues like that. And you also, um, you know, some, some of my brothers at times, they were doing certain things they shouldn't do, but they need to be educated too about how they affect their family you know, even, you know, your children that it's like perpetuating this and to understand their impact on the family. Um, I think they need to be educated about that as well. Yeah, because sometimes certain things can be avoided there. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that because now it's starting to make sense why I act the way I do (laughs) about things. So this is, I, I am so glad that you're here and writing this book. And I see it's on Amazon. Is it in audio too? Or is it yes. A- mm-hmm. Nope. It's in um, uh, uh, print form and audio form um, and on Kindle. It's all the things. It's every way in which you can read a book <laughs> and take in a book. But yes, it's definitely on audio files. You can read, listen to it as you drive to work or ride to work. You have to, you have to listen to this because this is going to help us, you know, everybody. This is for everybody to to know about. Now, when you were, you were talking about it first, how that you're educating people like lawyers to be educated in this and stuff. So how many lawyers, do you have enough lawyers being <laughs> trained in this, in the juvenile system? So, yeah. of, you know, cause a lot of people sometimes are like, I don't know if I could deal with the juveniles because yeah. we get this, oh, cause they, they're risk takers. They're like, sometimes you'd be like, oh, which is good. So it's like, sometimes you don't get as many people working with the juveniles. So do you have that issue? That's a great question. And one thing I'll say, I'll tell you this, is that we have started trying to not call them juveniles. And that's right, to call them children or youth. And the reason being, we did some, we looked and there's no, um, uh, that the term juvenile is always associated with some negative concept, right? Like juvenile diabetes, a disease, or juvenile male, like a horse, right? Um, Or juvenile delinquent. And so, and we tell, like when we do trainings for police officers, we often say, well, you would never say to your your spouse or your partner, well, we're going to go out to dinner when our juvenile gets <laughs> out the phone, 
right? We don't talk like that. We only talk about it in this sort of negative and pejorative way. And so we've been trying to, part of our trainings, literally to get people into the space and doing the work is, is, is reminding folks that they're children, that they're youth, that they're teenagers, and nobody is as bad as the worst thing they've ever done, right? So even if they do something really stupid that has really, you know, harmful com- consequences or outcomes, you know, if they hurt people, sometimes even when they hurt people, it starts as a stupid adolescent, you know, impulsive reaction that they didn't anticipate would be as bad as it was, right? So that's one piece. So the question is, are there enough lawyers? I have to say, we are really growing a cadre of, or a, a, you know, a coalition of youth defense lawyers who specialize in representing children arrested and prosecuted in courts all across the country. And I would say the years ago, um, you know, there's a woman named Patty Piritz who started the National Juvenile Defender Center before it was changed. They've now changed their name. Um, but that was started because we needed lawyers who would specialize and understand that representing adults in criminal court was different than representing children in adult in juvenile court, right? And that we needed people who had that adolescent brain science, that research. And we're lawyers. I'm a lawyer. Like I didn't go to med school, right? But I, we started partnering with psychologists, developmental psychologists. We started uh, partnering with um, neurologists. We would have conferences and we would bring them in and have them teach us about the adolescent brain. We would have the the adolescent psychologists come in and teach us about the stages of development radically transformed our ability to represent children in court better. So now you ask the question, I, um, at, at Georgetown Law School, again, in partnership with the Galt Center, we now host an annual camp. So attorneys apply from all over the United States to come to Washington, D.C. for seven days and literally learn how to represent children. We also do a number of what we call train the trainer programs where we get we go out on the road ourselves and we train folks on the ground in various states so that they can raise the level of practice in their states. We have webinars. So anybody who's listening, all the things that we've been talking about, we have webinars on our Georgetown Juvenile Justice Clinic website, right? You can go find it. Georgetown Juvenile Justice Clinic and look for our racial justice work. You will find webinars on the family policing system, webinars on the prosecution of children as adults, webinars on the school to prison pipeline, webinars on the traumatic effects of policing. We did a whole two hour program on the trauma and we brought in experts that would help us talk about that and teach that. So that's what we are doing collectively across the country. And there are phenomenal lawyers who specialize in this work and are some of our latest work is our ambassadors for racial justice program and our racial justice toolkit, which is designed to not only now that we've been talking about how do you represent adolescents, we need to talk about how do you represent children of color in ways in which that account for both adolescents and race. And so we have a lot of work that we've been doing in that space as well. So there's a growing number of lawyers. I hope some people are listening to this podcast who are thinking about law school or who really want to partner around this work, who want to fund this work. All of those things are important. That is very much important. I'm so glad that you have something annual and that you're constantly 
you know, educating people about this issue because I don't think a lot of people understand the issue. You just educated me on a lot of stuff here because I don't know about these sort of opportunities. And you sometimes you see parents there at their wits' end on what to do and how to parent. And I think if you don't know how to parent, sometimes you run into issues like this and you know, you want to get them help quickly. So is there like anything else? This has just been so informative. I, I can't imagine. I'm surprised you had time to even take this. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's, like, it's a little busy. I, we're pretty hectic, but we're trying to get the word out about what needs to be done. And I think you ask, is there anything else I would say? It's just, it's really committing ourselves to remember that black children are children too. And that all of that research that I talked about, what we know about adolescents is the same across race lines, across class lines, across the world. There have been international studies about the key features of adolescence, the key features of what it means to be teenagers. And we find all of the same traits and characteristics. It's only the black and brown children, the children who are disproportionately of color who are sent and responded to as if they are somehow deviant when they engage in normal adolescent behavior. So I just challenge all of us to remember what it was like to be a teenager. And even when you get frustrated and annoyed at what teenagers do, that they're still teenagers and we don't need to send them to court. So I think that's an important piece for me to leave with the audience. Yeah, I thank you for that because it's a lot of hidden prejudices that people don't understand that they have. I think um, it's a natural response at times to have prejudice because it's a security thing in your mind. I don't know. They talk. I'm just knowing for my own self. But they have to recognize that and control that and look at it, understanding that they they're not in those shoes. They can't just think about, hey, that's it and not have it examined, themselves examined, as they're making these, these judgment calls, as they're making these policies and rules. And I just hope this really gets national attention all the time because it's not, it's everybody's problem. It's not just our community. We, we, everybody needs to be just educated on this, period, because we all need to work together to get this done. And I hope we see more on political front. I don't care what side it is. Whoever don't just do the work. I don't care what your little agendas. Like we need help in this area because it is real. Because the numbers are there. It's more of us, more black and brown kids in the system, more black and brown adults in the system. And that's what I was looking at. Like why are we the majority there? And we need to look at some of the policies that we put in place. And uh, we, I like this rethinking creatively how to do things. And that's really why I did the show, because I think we do need to strategize ways together on just solving this problem. So yeah. thank you so much. I really enjoyed this interview and you taking the time out to talk to me. And this is, you're doing great work. God bless you. I'll be praying for you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you for creating spaces like this for all of us to have these conversations. That concludes my interview with Miss Christine Henning. 
Again, she is an attorney out of Washington, D.C. that deals with our juvenile justice system or our children justice system. I'm pretty sure like me, you picked up a lot of things that you weren't aware of before because we're not privy to this information because of confidentiality for juveniles. So having her here and speak on the topic is really helpful for us to understand what's going on there. And quite frankly, we need to address this because this is where it begins. This is a gateway. Her book is Rage of Innocence, How Black American Youth Are Being Criminalized. And she just gave some of the stories from her book. There's plenty more there. Please pick up this book to get more insight into the juvenile justice system because we are not privy to this information. Now, here are my takeaways from the interview. One, our perception of juvenile crime and our responses. Like she said, most of us may think juvenile crimes all are violent. But looking at what she's saying and some of the stories about, especially about the young lady that just took the phone, it may not be the case. We need to realize that our perception may be wrong and take steps to know what's going on. My second takeaway is the possible solutions. She came up with some great solutions that I think we should look at. She said possible solutions may be reimagining how police should be used. Maybe police shouldn't be called when your cat is up a tree or something to the effect. I agree with that. And we should be looking at what police are doing, not defunding them, but just having them look at things that they should be looking at so that we can just have the most effective policing. Also, a possible solution she mentioned was education like retraining police, educating the public, educating the police, educating parents. This is a holistic approach, saying that we need to look at the whole system, not just at the children. We also need to look at the teachers. We need to look at the children and just being aware of what's going on in parents too. And I'm talking about parents all around, not just black parents, it's parents. And parents need help because I had to learn this myself. My kids are not me. And my kids are growing up in a totally different culture. And we need to be on alert and be aware of what's going on around them. How are they behaving, looking and paying attention and not being so busy? So these are the things that parents should be very aware of and this is part of parenting another solution she mentioned was decriminalizing some of the behaviors Mm, let's think about that one i'm not so sure about that one that i think should be I'm, i'm of the mind that yes some of these behaviors shouldn't be criminalized but i think it should be done at the court levels, at the discretion of the judge and the lawyers with them doing some analysis and bringing that to the board and just whether we charge them with that or not. It just depends on the kid, the situation and what's going on. I don't think we should take away the ride. 
I don't think we should use the rod on everyone, but I don't want to not have the rod. So again, we should be looking at the behaviors and addressing them early and addressing them quickly. Then we won't have as much of the issue as we're seeing in today's society. My third takeaway is the harmful effects of social media media, social media, however you want to call it. And just being careful what our children are looking at. We also should be careful of what we're looking at as adults because unbeknownstly, our perception changes. Those are my takeaways. Thank you for listening. And may you have a week filled with blessings. Thanks for tuning in to the show. For more information on our guests and resources, visit prisonerspardon.com. If you're enjoying the content, follow, like, and subscribe to this podcast. Also, please be sure to leave a rating and review. Until next time, God bless.